and he rejected the faith of his parents and uh, instead began to live a pretty rebellious life going a different direction from the path that his parents had carved out for him. At some point along the way, his life takes a tragic turn as he was abducted by pirates. That is not meant to scare anyone into disobeying their parents, okay? That's not what we're getting at there. Uh, But he was taken by pirates. He was taken away from his home. And he was sold into slavery in Ireland. There he was forced to uh, be a shepherd out in the field and to work out in these fields in, in very rough conditions. And it was during that time of being isolated, of being away from home, of this tragic experience of being enslaved, that he began to lean again on the faith that he had learned about as a child. In his time alone in the field, he began to meditate on scripture that he had been taught and scripture that he had memorized as a child. He began to have conversations with the Lord and the Holy Spirit would speak to him. And he began to have his heart turned to the Lord and he grew in deep intimacy with him. Even to the point that the story goes that one day he felt the Lord whisper to him that now was the time to make his break and now was the time to run away. And the Lord told him where to go. And he ran for a harbor. When he arrived at that harbor, there was a ship about to take off. He got on the ship. He escaped from slavery and eventually made his way back home. Back home in England, he dedicated his life to serving the Lord. And the way that he chose to do that was uh, he became a clergy person. And so he served within the church. And when the time came towards the end of his life, when he was getting ready to retire from that and getting ready to enjoy the wealth that he had inherited, he had a dream. And in that dream, he saw one of those Irish slave masters. And he heard this voice speak to him in the dream. And that voice said, young slave boy, Please come back to us and bring us the gospel of Jesus. He woke up. He was so shaken by this experience. And he was so convinced by this experience that he sold most of what he had. And he set off for Ireland to to become a missionary to the very people who once enslaved him. His ministry there was so fruitful as he became a part of that community, embracing his enemies in a very real way, loving his enemies in a very real way. And and Christianity began to take hold in that place. The gospel of Jesus began to transform the lives of the people that he came in contact with, and he spearheaded a gospel movement that absolutely transformed that country. To this day, that country honors him deeply, even though he was not from Ireland. They honor him deeply. He's known as St. Patrick. And they honor deeply the contribution that he made to their culture and the way that he brought Jesus Christ to them 
and change them forever. Amen? Amen. It's beautiful. St. Patrick's Day is not just about wearing green so you don't get pinched. Somebody already pinched me. Technically, this shirt is green that I have under here, okay? Don't pinch me, all right? It's not about that. It's not about green beer. It's not about good luck or anything else like that. It's about a person who was so sold out to the gospel, who was so transformed themselves by the gospel that they became a transforming presence in the midst of people who had once been his enemies. That's the power of the grace and the love of Jesus. Amen. Because St. Patrick's eyes were opened by the light of Jesus, he became a light of revelation of Jesus to others. His life opened blind eyes so that they could see the light shining through him. There's a famous prayer that's associated with St. Patrick. It's known as the breastplate of St. Patrick. And here is a portion of that. Here's what he prays. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ within me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ at my right, Christ at my left, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. He was so transformed by Jesus Christ that his deepest desire was that people would see Jesus Christ in him and be transformed as well. I want to see this prayer become a reality for us as a church. I honor you as as the way that you already live this out. And I want to see the Holy Spirit empower us to grow more and more in living this out and embodying the words of this prayer, to be so transformed by the light that we become a light in this community around us, to become a revelation of who Jesus is, to have our eyes so opened to him that we can't help but open the eyes of others around us. That's my prayer for us. Jesus, as we dig into your word today, we are inspired by this person from history and this tradition that comes down to us. But we're only inspired by it because he was inspired by you. And we honor you today. We lift you up today above everyone and above all things. And we celebrate you. We surrender ourselves to you. And we ask that you would transform us as a church. That we, you would transform us as followers of you. As a community of people who are walking in your way. That you would transform us so deeply that we would become an agent of transformation in this community. That we would see you, the light of the world, with such clear eyes that we would become a light in this community. That our eyes would be open so that you could use us to open the eyes of others around us. Challenge us from your word today. We're listening, we're open, we're obedient, we're surrendered to you. Teach us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Today we are in the Gospel of John, uh, John chapter 9. And uh, we are continuing in this series of Imagine God. I want to thank my brother Josh, who is here today, who preached last week for us. Where's Josh at? There he is. Stand up, Josh. 
Look at that beard, everybody. Ain't that beautiful? All right. Let's thank Josh for leading us last week. Thank you, buddy. So we're in this series uh, through the season of Lent. Lent is this 40-day season in historic Christianity as a part of the historic Christian calendar, where as we're making our way towards the crucifixion and the resurrection, it's this 40-day season that leads up to that, to the crucifixion of Jesus on Good Friday, to the silence of God as Jesus lies in the tomb on Holy Saturday and the victory of God as Jesus emerges alive in resurrection power from the grave on Easter Sunday. So in this 40-day season as a church, as we're walking towards this through Lent, uh, we're studying these seven I am statements of Jesus. And these statements that Jesus makes where he reveals deep theological truth through creative imagery for this deep transformation and this breakthrough transformation that he wants us to experience. So Jesus takes the concept of who he is and and the truth of who he is, and he delivers it to us through these creative images. There's no way for us to ever get our minds around the reality of who God is and the character of God, the holiness of God, the love of God. We could never get our minds around that, but Jesus in his brilliance hands us these images as a way to help us to imagine God, to catch a glimpse of who God is. So these seven I am statements that Jesus gives us. And the one that we're looking at today is Jesus' statement in John chapter 9. He also makes the same, same statement in John chapter 8, where he says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. So let's read that passage together. John chapter 9, we're looking at verses 1 through 11. As he went along, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Let's stop right there. All right, so Jesus is walking along and they encounter Jesus and his disciples together. They encounter this man who was born blind and they use this man's scenario to launch a theological debate with Jesus. Jesus, teach us about this theology of of how God punishes sin. Why is this man born blind? Is it a punishment because of his sin? Somehow was he sinning in the womb? Or is it a sin passed down to him from his parents? Why is it that he's living with this suffering? Whose sin caused this suffering? His sin Or his parents' sin. And Jesus brilliantly uses this opportunity to open their eyes and to enlighten them. Here's what Jesus says. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus takes this question where they take this this man's suffering and, and what he's living through and they turn it into this theological debate and Jesus turns it back on them. Here's something that we need to understand. We need to understand this. 
Do not try to trace a person's suffering in their life back to some kind of sin that they must have committed to deserve that. Okay? If you would like to do that, then you need to keep on tracing all the way back to the original sin and to the moment that humanity fell into sin at the beginning. And when humanity decides to sin and rebel against God in the garden, and there's a break that happens in that moment, it's not only humanity who falls into sin. It's not only humanity's fall in that moment, but we drag all of creation down with us. And so because of that moment, we live in a broken world. We live in a broken world where tragedy happens. Is that God's original design for creation? No. So do not try to connect a person's suffering to some kind of sin that they must have committed in their lives or some kind of lack of spiritual depth or lack of faith that they must be having. Do not do that. Do not do that with a person's sickness. Please do not do that. Do not do that with a person's tragedy. Please do not do that. Do not do that with a person's anxiety or depression. Do not do that with a person's unemployment or poverty. Do not do that. Jesus cuts that off. Jesus cuts that off. There are two statements that we need to understand. One is a false statement and one is a true statement. The false statement that you've heard over and over again is everything happens for a reason. The true statement is everything that happens can be redeemed. Everything that happens can be redeemed. Don't trace a person's suffering to something that they must have done wrong to deserve that. That's called karma, and that's not a part of Christian theology. Grace is not like a Christian version of karma. They're completely different from each other. They're completely different. From each other. So we live in a broken world because of humanity's sin, and that's part of the reality that we live in. But Jesus tells us that all things are going to be reconciled and all things are going to be redeemed. So don't try to make everything fit into this category of, well, everything happens for a reason. No, but everything that happens can be redeemed. God is greater than any suffering, any tragedy, and He can bend the arc of any of it towards redemption towards our hope and towards his glory he has the power to do that so jesus cuts through that at that moment and he says this moment is actually going to shed light for the rest of you on the reality of who god is having said this he spit on the ground let me stop for just a second on this statement that he makes about the light of the world while i am in the world i am the light of the world jesus says this is a powerful image that jesus gives us and we see light used as this powerful image all the way throughout scripture but specifically in the gospel of john John keeps coming back to this. The Apostle John, the author of this gospel, he keeps coming back to this imagery of Jesus being the light. In the prologue to this gospel, in the first uh, few verses of the first chapter of John, seven times John uses the word light. 
just in the prologue introductory verses of this book. Seven times. Now, why would he do that? It's obviously a point back to the creation story. And this sense there that he's trying to make this connection for us back to the creation story. We know that because the first three words of the Gospel of John are the same first three words of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. John begins his gospel in the same way. He says, in the beginning, intentionally making this connection back to the creation narrative. And we see him do it again seven times using the word light. Light being the first thing that is created in the creation story. God speaks, let there be light, and there is light. And also the number seven, representing those seven days that are laid out there in that creation story. So John is layering this image intentionally. We see it all the way throughout his gospel. He keeps coming back to light as his intentional image. I am the light, Jesus says. In other words, I am the new creation is what John is getting at there. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Did we really need to do that, Jesus? Come on, man. All right. This is an awkward moment, okay, for I'm sure all the disciples around and especially for this man. Now, why would Jesus do something like that? Just to weird the guy out? No, obviously not. Again, it's pointing back to the creation narrative and the fact that Jesus has come to set all things right. Back to the original question that the disciples asked, who sinned? Trace it all the way back to the fall of humanity that brings about the fall of all of creation. But Jesus has come to set all things right. Jesus is the new creation story. And what went wrong in the garden is being set right through Jesus. So echoing an image that we get in the second chapter of Genesis, we see Jesus get down, hands in the dust. In the same way that we're told humanity is created in that account in the book of Genesis. Hands in the dust, he scoops up dirt, he spits into it, he creates mud. And he uses it to bring light into this place of darkness in this person's life. Jesus is the new creation story. Go, then, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the, men, so the man went and washed and came home seeing. I love that. So beautiful. This word pool, the, the, the name of the pool that means sent is an echo back to what we see all the way throughout this gospel. That Jesus keeps referring to himself as the sent one. The one that the father has sent. And then he turns that around on us at the end of the gospel of John. Where he says this, as the father has sent me, now I am sending you. I am sending you. This is an important word in, in the whole context of Christianity and what Jesus is telling us our mission is we are sent as the father sent Jesus now Jesus is sending us empowered with the Holy Spirit to go out and live the gospel and carry the gospel into the culture around us in the same way that St. Patrick who we're talking about at the beginning is sent into that culture to bring about transformation we 
are sent. Every single one of us. If you are a follower of Jesus, then you are sent. You have been sent. Every believer is a disciple. You hear us say this all the time. Every believer is a disciple. The invitation isn't simply believe in me, but the initial invitation of Christianity since the beginning and continuing on to the day is Jesus saying, come follow me. Walk with me in this way that I am carving out. So every believer is called to be a disciple. And it also tells us that every disciple is called to be a missionary. Every disciple is called to be a missionary. As we've said several times before, if you are not yet a missionary, then maybe you still need one. If you are not yet a missionary, then maybe you still need one. The full sweep of discipleship means to follow Jesus and then to be sent by Jesus to be this ripple effect of transformation. This man is transformed by Jesus and then he is sent by Jesus. And the same is true for each of us. One of the things we need to know about the context of this passage is that the pool that Jesus sends him to is actually a distance away from where this uh, moment takes place. And so we're told that the man actually isn't healed, actually isn't able to see until he goes to the pool, until he walks out in obedience what Jesus told him to do. And it's in that obedience that Jesus is empowering this transformation in his life. Jesus doesn't empower disobedience, by the way. If Jesus has spoken something to you and you're living in direct disobedience to that, Jesus does not empower disobedience in your life. Jesus empowers obedience. And so he sends him and this man goes. He does it. He goes and he washes in this pool. And it's actually a distance away from where this moment and this encounter takes place, which tells us this, this man who was born blind has to stumble and fumble his way to the pool. How did he get there? How did he get there? Now, he had been getting around for most of his life. Obviously, it tells us he was born blind. But it's also very likely that a person came and helped him along the way. He needed help to get there. He needed help to get there. Here's the deal, church. People in this room and people who are a part of our broader community are experiencing transformation. They're responding to encounters that they're having with Jesus. And we cannot leave them to stumble on their way alone. We cannot. Somebody comes along and believed what had already happened enough and believed in this promise of what was about to happen in this person's life enough to help him get to the pool so that transformation could continue to happen in his life. We need to be prepared to walk with people so they don't have to stumble their way alone towards the transformation that Jesus is working in their lives. And if that's you, if you're going through a season of transformation because of your encounter with Jesus, don't stumble along alone. Find a place to get plugged in here through the church, either through volunteering or through some of the small groups or some of the bands, those intense and intensive discipleship environments so that people can walk along with you. So that people can walk along with you. Now, what happens after this story? This story is absolutely remarkable. It's a beautiful story of the healing power of Jesus. 
in this person's life. And Jesus speaks this transformation. Jesus touches this man's eyes. And it says in the end, he came home seeing. Radically transformed by the power of Jesus. But unfortunately, immediately after this happens, this story takes a tragic twist. Because the man who is celebrating the fact that he was born blind and is now able to see, runs into a group of religious experts that Scripture tells us are called the Pharisees. And they squash it. They squash it immediately. It says that they bring this person in for questioning. Number one, because they are dead set against Jesus. We already get that building in the chapters that are coming before that, but also because Jesus, quote unquote, breaks the law of God by healing this man on a Sabbath day. That's supposed to be a day without work. And they're like, technically healing him would be considered work. So Jesus, you have just broken the law of God. This man who has just opened blind eyes. And so they drag this man in for questioning. And they begin to question him about how this happened. And they begin to speak doubt into his life about what has truly happened to him. And they say, I don't believe it. Other people around are saying, this can't be him. It looks like him, but there's no way it can be him because I know he was born blind. They even drag the man's parents into this. And they say, tell us, is this your son? And if so, how is it that he now is able to see? And they're like, listen, we don't, that is definitely our son. How he became able to see, we don't know. He's old enough to speak for himself. Ask him. It says they said that because they were afraid of these religious experts. Can you imagine that? To be a parent who's just seen their child who was raised up blind, blind from birth. Now the eyes are open and your first reaction is, let him speak for himself. I don't really want to get anywhere near that. I don't want to trouble myself with that. So they begin to question him. They begin to sow doubt into his life. They begin to speak against what Jesus has done in his life. And we see that the real tragedy in this story is not that a man is born blind, but that the religious experts remained blind even with the truth standing right there in front of them in plain sight. We know that it's a natural pattern of this world that eyesight can diminish progressively, right? We get that. A few years ago, I had to start wearing reading glasses. And at first I was like, oh, I feel smarter, okay? And then it just got annoying, Okay. And uh, but it got worse. And like the reading glasses that you like buy off the rack in Walmart or whatever. All right. I look like a very stylish old lady. OK. Um, they started not to do the trick anymore and I needed more help. My eyesight was diminishing. It was in this progress of diminishing. So I went to the eye doctor and he's the same age as me. And he's like, listen, man, the truth is you need bifocals, but we're the same age. So I'm not going to do that to you. So I'm going to give you another option, all right? So he gave me glasses, and these glasses that I had to start wearing, he's like, wear them just when you need them, and I had to start wearing them almost all the time to now where I have contacts that I wear all day, every day, okay? There's this progress of diminishing eyesight that is happening with me. Pray for me on that, all right? And so we know that that's a natural pattern, and I had to deal with that truth that he said to me. He's like, a guy your age, like this just happens, all right? I'm like... 
I do not like you anymore. Okay. <laughs> but we get that. But unfortunately, we can also look around and see that the same can be true for followers of Jesus. People who have been radically transformed by the light, whose eyes have been opened, who've been transformed and experienced the grace of Jesus. And they know that it's the grace alone of Jesus that rescued them, that saved them. But somewhere along the line, pride starts to creep in. And they start to take, and we start to take pride in this place of relationship that we have with Jesus. And somehow, followers of Jesus who laid down his life on the cross, who got down on his hands and knees and washed the feet of people who were going to deny him and betray him and scatter from him when he needed them most. This person who showed us what it looks like to be a servant. Somehow, as his followers, we can begin to see ourselves in a place of superiority and not in a place of servanthood. And we can start taking pride in that. I want to pause right now. I want to pray for our Muslim brothers and sisters who are experiencing that trauma of what took place in New Zealand. And Lord, we pray for our Muslim brothers and sisters and we stand around them and we stand beside them and we pray your comfort over them and to them. And we rebuke violence against a person of any religion. We rebuke violence against any person. And by name, we rebuke violence that is driven by racism or by prejudice against a person's religion. And in place of... Of that, we pray for your overwhelming love and we pray for your comfort in the midst of that tragedy. And as your servants, we want to take a place of servanthood and not a place of superiority. Guard our hearts against that. Help us to love our neighbors, regardless of how different they may seem to us. Open our eyes. Amen. So as followers of Jesus, it is dangerous for us to begin to see ourselves in this place of superiority. Take pride in our relationship with him as if it had anything to do with us. We take pride in our knowledge of scripture, in our understanding of theology, in our works, in our actions of compassion in our maturity in the faith, and our leadership in the church. And we've seen that happen, and too often it's happened to us. And Jesus is here to heal that kind of blindness as well. Of course, darkness is used in Scripture and specifically in the Gospel of John to represent the power of evil, and light is represent. It is used to represent the overwhelming and stronger power of Jesus. We sang that earlier, Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Jesus, Jesus, you silence fear. Your name is a light that the shadows can't deny. Your name cannot be overcome. 
Love that. And the power of those words. And so often we think of light and darkness in that kind of imagery in Scripture. But it strikes me and convicts me that in this story, the darkness represents the spiritual blindness of the religious experts. Of those who thought they were standing right in the center of God's will. And so it's not seen as this blatant kind of power of evil, but instead it's seen as perhaps a more sinister and dangerous form, which is spiritual blindness. They knew all there was to know about God, except how to recognize him when he stood right in front of them. And too often we find ourselves in that exact same place. It also humbles me to see how many times this person who was born blind is asked a question about Jesus and he answers with, I don't know. I don't know. He gives some incredible answers through this as they start to press him. He says some incredible things. One of the things he says is, I don't know how he did it. All I know is I used to be blind and now I can see. All right. They keep pressing him and he he comes back to them with this line. I love this. He's like, I've already told you this. Why do you keep asking me? Do you want to be his disciple too? Which is awesome. I love it. But time and time again, he comes back to them with this answer. I don't know. He cannot define what happened to him, but no one can deny it either. It can't be defined, but it can't be denied because he is the living proof of the transforming power and grace of Jesus right there in front of them. Now, that's not to celebrate ignorance, all right? And we're not telling you, hey, listen, you don't need to know anything about the Bible or you don't need to know anything about theology. We are definitely not saying that, okay? It's not celebrating ignorance, but here's the deal. Ignorance, that word is not simply just to lack knowledge. Think about the word itself. It comes from the idea of ignoring. Ignorance is to ignore. It's not that you lack knowledge. It's that you have the truth at your disposal and you still refuse to see it. So the ignorant person in the story is not the blind man who says, I don't know. He's actually the enlightened person. The ignorant person in the story are the scholars who claim to know everything. That's not a dig against our scholar friends in the house today, all right? And absolutely, this man is invited to continue to walk into that light and to grow in grace and to go into deeper places of understanding with Jesus. But it begins here with this sense of enlightenment, his eyes being open to the truth. Here's the point. Jesus says very clearly, I am the light. We know who he is. He tells us that. He shows us that. The question that we have to wrestle with today, we know who Jesus is. The question is, who are you? Who are you in this story? Jesus is the light in this story, but who are you in this story? Are you the blind man? Or are you one of the Pharisees? Are you the blind man whose eyes have been closed, but now you're about to have an encounter with Jesus where you're going to see the light and you are about to be transformed by it? Maybe that's you today. 
Simply open yourself up to that. Receive what he has for you. Respond to that tug that you are feeling in the depth of who you are. And embrace the light that is dawning on you today. Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead, for the light of Christ has dawned on you. Maybe that's who you are today. Or maybe you are one of the Pharisees. And your spiritual pride has blinded you from seeing what Jesus is working in your life. That is the tragic twist of this story. Not just that a person was born blind, but that those who claim to know God the most chose to remain blind when the light dawned on them. I want to close with these three questions. First is this. How then were your eyes opened? That's specifically the question that the Pharisees ask this man who was born blind. As they're making him give an account for what happened, they ask him this question. How then were your eyes opened? Pause for a moment and remember that for yourself. How were your eyes opened to the truth of Jesus, to the light of Jesus? That moment where you embraced it, the light dawned on you. You opened your eyes and you experienced awakening in him. How were your eyes open? Second is this, repent. How now are your eyes closed? Ask the Holy Spirit to point that out. Ask the Holy Spirit to convict you of places of blindness in your life. To show that to you. So that you can respond by repenting, by turning away from that and turning towards him. And the third is this, receive. Where do you need light to see clearly? Ask him to shine it in your life. He is the light of the world. He's here to open your eyes and he wants to do just that. As we close today, we're going to celebrate communion together. And this meal that we share together every week in celebration of what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus continues to do in us. And what Jesus desires to do through us for this community. Jesus, on his last night with his disciples, he's gathered with them around the table. And on this night where he's going to be betrayed and denied and rejected. Jesus takes the bread that is on the table and he shows his disciples the reason for which he was sent. He breaks the bread that's on the table And he said, this bread represents my body that is broken for you. Because sin has broken humanity and all of creation along with us. Jesus says, I am being broken for you to make you whole, to heal you. What went wrong in the garden is being set right in Jesus. Then Jesus took the cup that was on the table. And he said, this cup represents my blood, the blood of the new covenant poured out for the salvation of the world. Every time you taste it, remember what I have done 
for you. This represents the forgiveness of our sins through the blood that is shed by Jesus Christ on the cross to bring us back into a reconciled and full relationship with God. And that is possible for you today. So we invite you to come to the table. And if you want to embrace what Jesus Christ has done for you, then please come forward. We're going to have two stations, one on this side, one on that side. If you need a gluten-free option, that will be available for you right here. Come forward, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you need prayer during this time, that will also be available for you down front next to the communion stations. Come. Remember, repent, and receive.